Are you looking for adventure? Do you want to find peace? Long-distance trails offer you freedom and discovery. They offer a way to connect to yourself and to the world around you at the same time. The most popular trails have become crowded, but there are so many other trails that have plenty of space. The Trails Around the World podcast is here to introduce you to new trails and to new types of trails and to expand your horizons. Join me as we explore finding out what is possible and how to do it. Jim and Amy, welcome back to the Trails Around the World podcast. You did an interview with us on episodes five and six concerning Japan's Tokai Shizen Hodo. And today we're going to talk about another international hike, and that is the GR34 in France which is a coastal hike. In one to three sentences, please tell us why we would want to experience this trail and what makes it special. What makes it special is it's a very fine coastal hike. It's easy walking, easy planning, easy to execute, excellent food, great scenery, and nice people. Jim, do you have anything to add to that? I think if... That's a really good summary of the the walk. And I think using the word easy is a really accurate description because there are there's very little that's a technical challenge to this walk. It's as probably as simple a walk to pull off as as, as you can find. Can you give us a short reintroduction to each of you after the earlier interviews? In uh, episodes five and six, um, many people are going to be familiar, but but let's just do a, a short reintroduction. I'll, I'll do one. So I'm 60-something, and my husband James is 70-something. We both started focusing all of our recreational activities on hiking and other outdoor activities when we were very young, camping with our families and hiking with our families and backpacking with our families in the before most of your listeners were born. And we primarily focus on hiking and bird watching, but we've also done a little bit of canoeing and bicycling as well. We are both retired at this point, which gives us more options for travel and travel at times that are convenient to us. And we, pre-COVID, we're getting out a lot and both in the United States for backpacking and other trip birding trips and in foreign travel in as many places as we were able to get in around the world. Again, both for backpacking and trips that were oriented around birding. Thank you. This podcast is in English, so most people are going to be, be English speakers and some might not speak French. How much of an obstacle do you think that is? I speak basic French, only present tense, and maybe 30 verbs and 100 vocabulary words. Right. Even without that, I mean, with that, it was very, very easy. Without that, many people speak French, and everybody we met was eager to be helpful. So I don't think it would be a problem at all. Now, you're, you're in a Western European country where a reasonable percentage of people have been exposed to at least some English. And uh, you can 
since it's an since it's using characters that are easily understood, you can translate with a, a phone app or some other tool anything that you need to to understand. But there's going to be very little that's unfamiliar there. So grocery stores are grocery stores, restaurants are restaurants, and people do things in a way that are similar to you. Unlike walking in Japan, where you're in a very different culture and there's different cultural expectations and the language isn't using uh, English characters. So everything is another layer of complexity. It's We have found traveling in European countries not very complicated, even if we don't speak the language. And many people have said to me, oh, the French don't really want to speak English, but that was has never been my experience. It's yeah. Maybe it's just because we're on the trail and people are friendly when you're on the trail. But um, we've never we've never experienced that yeah. stereotype that French people don't want to speak English. France is number one for tourism in the world uh, in in relation to its size, especially, I think, but I think it is just in raw numbers. Um, and there are good reasons for that, as we will probably discuss. <laughs> it's a country with enormous variety and, and it's very picturesque and, and interesting, um, but also accessible. So on the GR34, how would you describe the terrain and the scenery? Well, before we get into that question, I'd like to set the stage for what the GR34 actually is. Thank you. It is a Grand Randonnée, which in France means an officially designated route that is going to be generally waymarked and maintained by authorities. It runs around the coast of Brittany, which is in northwest France. And it starts um, near Mont-Saint-Michel in the northeastern corner of Brittany and runs entirely around the coast all the way down to Saint-Nazaire. It overlaps, at least for a portion of it, um, the E9, which is one of the major European, trans-European routes that extends for thousands of miles across multiple countries. So it's the same route We have walked about, oh, I would guess three quarters of the 34 on two occasions. We, our first trip, we started in a town on the northwestern portion of Brittany called Roscoff and walked east to St. Malo and Mont St. Michel. Mont St. Michel is sort of where it terminates. Technically, it terminates inland from there a little bit, but that's not important. And then we actually continued up around the Carentan Peninsula all the way to Cherbourg. So we have, we've walked more coast on that side of Brittany than is actually on the 34. We came back a number of years later and went to Roscoff again, and this time started walking west around Brittany and went as far as Lorient, which is most of the way to St. Nazaire, but not all the way there. And from there, we actually took a couple of days and did an inland walk up a canal path and then back to Lorient for our trip home. So there's a small section between Lorient and St. Nazaire, which we have not walked. And if you look at the official 34 maps, 
they get a little ambiguous down a little bit near Van, where the 34 may or may not actually exist. There are coastal routes, but they are renumbered. And I haven't ever actually been able to figure out what's going on there. The 34 is primarily a coastal route, but unlike the British Southwest Coast Path, it has no qualms about going inland in places where it may make more sense or because there's a town there they want to take you to or for other reasons. Whereas the Southwest Coast Path, they do everything possible to say, keep your feet wet on one side or the other as you walk around that. So there are also many places where the 34 goes inland, but there'll also be a local coastal path as well. And so we many times chose to leave the 34 and stay closer to the coast or actually on the coast. As we discuss uh, in our trip report on this, one of the reasons the 34 often goes inland is because they want to make it walkable at any tide. And they have extremely high tides on this coast, 10 10 meters or more in places. Mm -hmm. And so they don't put it on a beach where a tide might cover it at some point. However, many of these beaches are completely accessible at anything less than a real high tide. So they're quite walkable and you can actually stay on the coast for most of the walk, even if it's technically off the 34. So to put it in perspective, we were within 200 meters of of the high tide mark for, I, I'm, I'm making this up, but maybe 90% of the trip. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the Southwest Coast Path in England is pretty much 100% of the trip, you're within 200 meters of the high tide mark. Right. Um, another slight difference between the 34 and the English coastal walks is in the 34, when you come to a, an inland estuary, and there are some very large ones, the trail takes you around those estuaries. And in England, you usually will find a ferry of some kind to cross the mouth of the estuary. And so you don't take these big inland diversions, again, staying along the water, but sometimes walking 10 or 20 miles to get from one edge of the headland to around to the other side. And so that is a little bit different feeling than the English walks. I should say, I mean, Brittany that you're talking about, if one looks on the world map at the at France, it's the part that extends out into the Atlantic Ocean. And so the, the furthest, most western part of France, and it actually goes almost as far west as, as the most western part of England to the north. Exactly. And people don't think of France and England having that geographical relationship, but it is due south of the western part of England. And there's actually more than a geographic relationship. There's a cultural relationship between Normandy and Southwest England. There's a Celtic culture that's still strongly seen in both places. They still, some of the people still speak Celtic root languages Mm -hmm. in Cornwall and in Brittany. They have uh, similar outlooks. And um, so there's a lot of cultural ties across the channel between those two places. Mm Mm-hmm. How did it compare, how did the GR34 compare to places that you have adventured before? 
Well, the GR34 is a coastal path. So in the category of coastal paths, we have hiked maybe five or six different countries, coastal paths in five or six different countries. Compared to non-coastal paths, it's just a completely different experience. So it's being on the coast in whatever country it is means you get the benefit of all the bird life and wildlife. You get the, the tides coming and going. You get the ocean breezes. You get families playing in the sand, the sort of very fun and upbeat, happy people out playing in the, in the surf. Um, you get to watch boats of all types from surfboards up through container ships. So in that sense, coastal hiking is a completely different category than inland hiking. Compared to other coastal hikes that we've done, I, for me, the Southwest Coast Path in England is probably still my gold standard, but that may be simply because it's the first overseas path that we hiked. I think for Jim, it's the GR34 was comparable in terms of the overall experience, the combination of towns and villages and cities and agricultural areas and beaches and boats and headlands and scenery. Yeah, very fine. Very fine coast walk. A coastal walking in some ways has more variety than pretty much any other type of trip you're going to be able to take. If you take a trip in the Sierras, you have grand mountains and beautiful meadows, but you have grand mountains and beautiful meadows. If you take a trip down in southwest Utah, you have fabulous slot canyons and beautiful red rock, and that's what you've got. And the coastal areas, as Amy was saying, there's so much variety and so much change constantly because, of course, the sea is never still. And if you're in an area with tides, the beaches come and go, the wetlands come and go. And even if you ignore the human activity, there's just so much natural change that they're constantly intriguing and they really are a wonderful experience to do. I wouldn't do exclusively coastal walks, but they certainly are something that I believe that if you haven't done a long coastal walk, you owe it to yourself to try because they are really, really wonderful experiences. So can I? Can I, as long as we're on the topic of this being one fine example of a coastal walk, Mm -hmm. many people have never considered coastal walking because they grew up hiking in mountains. And so you just think that when you go hiking, you should go to mountains. Um, The Southwest Coast Path in England is fantastic. We've hiked the entire coast of Wales, which is another very, very fine coastal walk. We've hiked the north coast of Scotland which was a fine walk and not as wet as the mountains in Scotland. We've done a, an ex- exceptionally nice coastal walk south from Sydney on the, in the southeast coast of Australia. Um, we spent a week on a coastal hike in Japan on the Izu Peninsula. Oregon Coast Trail. The Oregon Coast Trail. So there's coastal paths scattered around the world, and they're, they're, it's, a fine, it's a fine, fine category. I don't think I've covered one before on this podcast, uh, the Pacific Northwest Trail ends in a day or two of coastal walk. And that also has a huge influence from tides. Mm -hmm. 
And Jim, you mentioned the tides and the, you mentioned Mont Saint-Michel. Yes. And I believe that Mont Saint-Michel is, is the, the place where there's an island with a monastery on it. And then there's a, a path out to the monastery and you can only cross it at low tide. And Well, that was the path. It used to be that way. They've okay. made it accessible with a causeway. Um, so it's accessible no matter what the tides are doing. Okay. It is a beautiful, it's a small island. That they've built an incredible monastery cathedral structure on, and it looks like a mountain now. And it's sitting out in the middle of these enormous mud and sand flats, just plopped out there. And when the tide comes in, it looks like it's out to sea, with the exception of this little string of causeway. And it's it's one of those sort of tourist attractions that is on everybody's everybody's list. It's like Machu Picchu or it's the Taj Mahal, something on that level. And you think, oh, I don't want to go there just because it's such a cliche. But you get there, and it is a really beautiful place. It is really, really worth seeing. And there are a couple of similar ones, that, that monasteries that were built on islands. There's a couple in England, and um, I, I didn't remember if there's one in Wales, but I think there's another one somewhere in France as well. So part of this was, of course, they were walled for protection, and having the mudflats out there made them a lot safer from being uh, looted by the various people wandering around looking for stuff to steal. But it is, it, Mont St. Michel, we, we spent essentially a whole day there. And then an evening fell, and we found a really, really beautiful little place to camp right on the edges of the mud flats, um, looking, uh, overlooking the island and its monastery. And they have a big sound and light show there every night. And we were able to sit there and just watch this go on. And it was, it was a wonderful, memorable evening there. We were, of course, alone. We had our tent. No, there wasn't any, but there were no tourists around us. We didn't see anybody, no cars, nothing, just us mudflats and this beautiful structure on this island. And I should say about France um, in general, I think people think of Paris and urban landscapes. And some people think of the Alps and, and serious mountains. People think of farmland um, or uh, vineyards and this sort of thing. But the water is a very big part of French life. And I know I did a trip with a folding canoe on the canals in France. And I found myself dodging fishing lines the whole way. <laughs> and uh, also canal boats and such. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a very active community um, of canal boats and people living on them and people renting them. You can, you can easily rent a boat uh, in, in France. It's about the same price as a hotel and you can take your family and just cruise along and, and sleep on it and uh, stop in a village and find a place to eat lunch every day. Something I long dreamed of doing, but never got to. But fishing is a major pastime for the French. Mm -hmm. fishing, fishing on rivers, 
lakes and in the ocean. And as I looked at your pictures, the the sheer number of boats oh, yeah. along that coast is staggering. Yes. Yeah. From from uh world class racing sailboats right on down to small scale commercial fishing boats and everything in between. And Yes, staggering number of boats. Yeah, we thought that England was a maritime nation and walking around the coast there, you have all these little ports, but nothing prepared us for the harbors of boats in France that we had seen. And it it isn't just rich people with boats. We were there in the spring and constantly you'd see beaches that were full of little kids getting sailing lessons as part of their schooling. They would be out there. They'd have teachers. This is a regularly scheduled class. And there'd be 10 or 15 or 20 kids all in life jackets. And as they got older, they put them in bigger boats, fancier boats. And everywhere you went, you saw this stuff. It was fabulous. It was really fascinating. We saw kids taking kayak lessons. We saw kids on sailboards. We saw kids taking surfing lessons. And everywhere we went, the people were using the water. Yeah, I mean, listeners will know that I'm very interested in small boats and the history of small boats and this kind of thing. And more and more with transatlantic races, there there are round-the-world races and transatlantic races in um, that are that are single-handed, that are just one person or or maybe a couple, but usually just one person alone going across the Atlantic in a relatively small boat. And the, the French are very much overrepresented in these events now. And I, I think almost 50% of the field sometimes. Hmm. And also the sort of small boat building scene, which is pretty eclectic, but French designers and manufacturers of small boats for these sorts of sail and oar events like the Everglades Challenge that I uh, covered a couple of episodes ago, where you have boats that are sailed, paddled, rowed, but no engines around. And so you're talking about a boat that's small enough to be able to, to keep going, to go through weather, but to really take a voyage in a small boat, which has a lot of similarities to backpacking. (laughs) And the French are a growing influence in that world. And I was seeing that in some of the photos that you had there. Yeah, the harbors were just chock full of recreational boats. I don't think I've ever seen anything remotely approaching a number of boats anywhere else in the world, as we saw just one after another there. Yeah. Yeah. Boat maintenance facilities and little shipbuilders and boat builders scattered around. It was, it's a lot of fun to see. It's yeah, things that makes the it makes a coastal walk really interesting. So, how did you learn about this trail? How did you come to hike it? Well, we. You want to? Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. Okay. We did the first half of it roughly 10 years ago. And I believe that we first were exposed to it because there's a Cicerone guide to the GR34 through Brittany. No, this is not a, yes. And not, yeah, Cicerone, Cicerone guide. 
Yep, yep, you're holding it up to the screen. <laughs> it's been long enough now that I'm not sure if that's exactly how we found it or if we found it by just studying GR routes. We hiked the second part in 2019 in a fairly un uh, a decision-making process that was completely unique for us. Um, we had planned a six-week hike somewhere else in Europe, and we hiked the first week of it, and it rained every day. And although we had no bad experiences in any dimension, we were not feeling at all inspired by the scenery or the food or the architecture. It just was feeling flat. It was feeling flat, uh, not not geographically flat, but just flat. And to the point where I was starting to wonder whether I had hiked so much that it was no longer novel enough to be interesting. And that maybe I was, I, I literally felt like maybe I was hiked out. And I'm certain that part of it was the weather. Just a week of, of steady rain was not helpful. And so we got a a room in a pension and decided that it really just didn't feel inspiring to continue that route that we had planned. And we spent a couple of hours thinking, where can we go that we can go with absolutely no preparation at all? Like, where can we just show up and go hiking um, in Europe? Because we were already in Europe. And because we had hiked half of the GR34 and were familiar with it, we considered a number of different options, but that felt most promising. So we got ourselves back to uh, back to Brittany and hiked the other half. And it was a was a it turned out to be an excellent choice, good decision, and we had an absolutely fabulous yes. trip in Normandy on that. And I'm glad we made the choice that we did. Yeah. And um, it was easy because getting around in Europe is quite simple. There's really good public transportation pretty much from everywhere to everywhere. Mm -hmm. And we were able to download a GPX track of the 34. It proved that it was reasonably useful, useful enough to keep us on track um, for the bulk of the walk. And we knew after having walked the other portion of it, we kind of knew what to expect. And we knew that, um, we would be able to deal with all the logistical issues of food and so forth without any real problems. And since we had enjoyed the first walk a lot, we figured, well, it seems likely that we'll enjoy the other half of this thing on this walk. And it proved to be true. In some ways, I think I like the second half even more than the first half. So. That's nice added detail to the, the way you tell the story. Um, on your website. And I have to say, I'm, I just love that story. And I think it, it illustrates so much about this trail in particular, but also about backpacking slash hiking, whatever you want to call it, uh, that it's, you had your equipment with you, you were in a place you had the knowledge to be able to put something together, but it also didn't require all that much additional knowledge right. to go and do it. Just a map. 
Yeah. So, I mean, and, and you were able to, and, and you went and you hiked, what, four weeks? Five. We were out on that walk for... I think uh, five weeks. We were out there for 30 days. 30 days and 370 yeah. miles, I think you wrote. Uh, the, that, the, no, the second one was um, about 535 miles on the coast and another 30 miles inland. So, I think for people who have never hiked in Europe, any of the French GRs, the, so the Grand Randonnées are the are the major trails, and then there's Petite Randonnées and other regional trails. But of, of the GRs, for any of those, I would feel confident that I could show up at the start of it and find some sort of guidebook and go without any prep work. Now, in the mountains, you'd need to have the right equipment. Likewise, in the UK, for any national trail, they're so well-maintained and so well-waymarked that, um, and they're in and out of towns, that you could just show up and hike. Mm -hmm. I have two large, I have many maps from IGN, which is the main hiking map publisher in, in France. But I have many maps from IGN. But I'm thinking of two maps I have in particular. And one is a large map, and both are large maps, of the whole country. One side is the northern half of France and the other side is the southern half of France. And one of these maps shows all of the GRs in France. We have that map. And it is fantasy material. If you are a backpacker... You can lay that out on your living room floor on a Friday night and spend the entire evening crawling all over that map. Yes. There's also, you can get one for England, and it's the same kind of experience. It shows all the trails that lace that country. And between England and I, I, ho- I, I haven't seen one, but I suspect there may be one for, for, for Spain as well. But, but for England and France, the maps are absolutely fabulous. Yeah. And the, the other the other large map like that is one of all the waterways in France. Oh. Mm-hmm. So apropos of the trip I did with the folding canoe on the canals, you can stay in lodging all along the waterways of France and eat great food and paddle from place to place. And it it works out wonderfully. That the only hitch is that you're not allowed to take a canoe or anything that size through the locks. Yes. So you have to take something light enough that you can carry it around the locks. And <laughs> and that's a challenge. That's that's something to be very aware of going in. Uh it is strictly forbidden to try to take one. I I convinced someone to let me bring it through bring my my canoe through one lock. And um after that, I think I pretty much agreed with them that the the hydraulic pressure of the water pouring in and out of the locks, uh, you could be sucked into that and killed so quickly, or another boat could have an accident and crush you against a wall. Mm. That I think they're probably right not to allow canoes in the locks in France. We canoed the Mississippi River, mm-hmm. and there you do go through the locks alone. Yeah. You don't go through well. Occasionally we went through with other small boats and it is 
quite an experience. Yeah. It's, com- it's totally safe, completely safe. That's good. That's good. They, man- they must manage the hydraulics differently than they do in France. Yeah. Well, the locks in France are hundreds of years old. Mm-hmm. Okay. And many of them are still manual. So you have a, a mm-hmm. government employee, often seasonal, who comes out. Yes, I see on the video, you're, you're cranking your hand and then they come out and they manually crank these locks. And, and, um, I think in the UK too, I, th- I think some are even, uh, sort of self-serve and, um, yeah. yeah. And so if, if one rents a canal boat in one of these places, if, if a family has small kids, it seems to me very realistic to, to go and rent a canal boat. This is what I was thinking. My kids aren't small anymore. They can out hike me now, but this was my my dream at that point was to to rent a canal boat and just go to England or France and and spend a week or two and you know I could take my parents along as well and you could have the whole family on this. It ends up being um, financially uh, workable. It seemed when you first look at the price of the boat, it seems like it's going to cost something, but when you figure that you've got a kitchen and you've got your hotel room taken care of for maybe six or eight of you even, um, then suddenly it all starts making sense. Yes. Yeah. Well, I've, we've done some walking in England along the canals and I did one very, uh, relatively long canal walk in England on my own. And it's incredibly popular activity there. You saw all sorts of people on these canal boats and, there's one subset of people who just live on these things year round yep. and there's, there's the vacationers who are renting them. And uh, my favorite, I still love this. We saw one canal boat on one of our trips. It was called the black pig and it was a beautiful, beautiful canal boat. When we decided to do the second half of the GR 34 on a, a, um, a decision we made over the course of about an hour and a half, we were able to download the GPX file and Gaia GPS smartphone app has a feature called download maps for track, which is one of several things that make it such an outstanding application. So we were able to download the GPX file and then go into Gaia and say, download maps for track and just get the entire path downloaded so that we could use the maps without cell service. That that feature alone allows you to plan a trip like that on on a on a trail that's published where you can get a GPX file. Um, you can plan it and prepare in really literally a matter of hours. There are two levels of subscription on the Gaia GPS. Is that the the more expensive option, I think? I think I I don't know the answer to that, but I believe it's available to both levels. Yeah, I'm looking, I have the less expensive option and it, it says download map, but I, I don't see. In a different place. So you go to the track, uh-huh. start at the track instead of looking at the map. So if uh-huh. you go to saved tracks uh-huh. and open one of the tracks. Okay, so if you've downloaded a track ahead of time from the internet. Yes, yes. Okay. If you and have that- then when you look at that track and hit the more button, one of the options. That's interesting. Okay. Yeah. 
So, for instance, I have your track. The the only I think the only track I have on here um, that's downloaded is is your track of the Tokashi's on Hodo. So, if I go there, I I would be able to do that for yes, uh, yes, for and and Gaia also has quite good help content. So, if you um, search for Gaia download maps, um, it can walk you through how to do that. Yeah. That that feature is exceptionally useful when you're taking a long trip. Um, yeah. Yeah, I find myself downloading area maps, and I think uh, uh, Christine was on a couple of episodes ago talking about through hiking in Europe, and just marvelously instructive advice there as to to how to do uh, maps and such. And and she largely works off of open street maps, yes, uh, which is particularly extensive in the in Europe and um, various applications like Mappy uh, that you can use to to utilize open street maps. But I'm not sure that they have that feature, so that would be an advantage of Gaia GPS. Yeah, Gaia did not have it initially when they first came out. That was just downloading blocks, which. Right. Was- true for all of the map apps and a number of people who are long distance hikers advocated that, you know, a block works fine if you're going for a week backpacking in an area and you get a a rectangle of maps. But if you're following the Mississippi river from Minnesota to the Gulf of Mexico, you, you really can't download them one square at a time. Right. Do you know if it, does it download it? sort of a certain distance on either side of the trail? Yes, it downloads it in high resolution immediately at the trail and then progressively lower resolution as you go. So you get the the full context in lower resolution and then high resolution where you are. Right. So if you are lost, you can triangulate off nearby peaks because the low res is enough to triangulate. Yes. And this was for this particular trip, it was extremely helpful because when we made our decision to go to France, we were in Slovakia and um, it would not have been possible to find IGN maps there. Right. And when we arrived in France, it may have been possible to find IGN maps in Roscoff. Who knows? And if you could find a shop that have a map, they might have a map for their immediate coast, but they certainly right. wouldn't have a map for the entire route. Right. So we would have been map poor, and it would have been a constant struggle to try to find the next map. Yep. We ended up doing this thing with no paper maps um, huh. at all, which is not typical for us. But right. It, uh, it it enabled us to uh, to make this change, that particular tool. And I'm not sure that we would have been able to do this without it. Yeah. It certainly would have been a lot more complicated and a lot slower. Yeah. I think this is a, I mean, in the outdoor community, we have a somewhat of a an ongoing debate over whether one should carry paper maps or the degree to which one should carry paper maps. And and uh, how much one should depend on something that that is dependent on a battery, um, yeah. and that could put you in a dangerous situation if your battery dies. Much less true on a coastal route where you yeah. can always find people. Than yeah. in the so if, we, if we're in a place where if the battery dies, and we would be 
have no way of figuring out where we were. We always have paper maps. Uh, coastal path in France, I mean, you're never more than a few miles from some town or village and rarely more than a mile or two from some kind of road. Right. Uh, you're, you're not going to get yourself in a situation where you don't can't get out. Right. Um, going to Utah, there's no way in the world I would go there without paper maps. Right. Just not going to happen. Yeah. But I've been places with the family uh, here in Japan and um, we're sort of saying, okay, we've done enough of this. Why don't we go for a hike? You know, can we go up that hill? And now with electronic maps, I'm able to just pull, you know, pull out the phone and, and uh, dial up the map and yep, there's a trail right over there. Let's head up this road and, and uh, you know, we can hit the top of that, of that yeah. hill there. Yeah. <laughs> and you can find the, the trails. It's, it's amazing. And uh, 20, you know, even 10 or 15 years ago, you, you couldn't do that, but now you can. Well, both, I mean, they both tools are really, really useful and they complement each other in a, in a yeah. nice way. And so I would never try to say one is better than the other or one, you should use one exclusively over yep. the I think that um, having both, we're fortunate. Yeah, it's a it's a huge augmentation. But um, as as with that argument about electronic versus paper maps, um, this always goes with the proviso that you need to be very careful if you're out there hiking and <clears throat> you don't have the background to navigate or get yourself out of trouble. Um, that you don't get yourself into trouble with an electronic map. It's very easy to get oneself in over one's head. Um, and if you, you know, perhaps you go off the downloaded map, perhaps you didn't download the map and you were depending on cell data and um, suddenly you're lost and That's you're lost in a place where no one's going to find you yeah. and you can't find your way out or you fall and you get injured and you are stuck. Yeah, or you're in New Zealand and the Kia carries your phone away. There you go. <laughs> that sounds like another story. So back to this, to the GR34. You mentioned that you did it in essentially two different iterations. And what was the timing for those two trips? Okay. The first trip was in 2007. Uh-huh. And um, the second trip was in 2019, so they were 12 years apart. Um, and the first trip, we walked about 380 miles on the 34 between Roscoff to St. Malo. And then we walked an additional um, 170 miles to Cherbourg from there. The second trip, as I said earlier, we walked from Roscoff to Lorient, which was about 540 miles. And then we walked an additional 30-some miles inland um, to just to use up a couple of days. And it does extend a little further beyond Lorient to uh, St. Nazaire. What are the considerations that would affect the timing for doing this trail in terms of weather, seasons, that sort of thing? Uh, it would be cold in the winter and probably not optimal. So mid-April through September, mm -hmm. maybe into October, we're not that familiar with it. 
However, July and August are holiday season, so if you like the thrill of thousands and thousands of holiday merrymakers on the beach, then July and August would be, particularly August would be fine. If you want a little bit more quiet, avoiding August would be a good plan. So maybe June and September would be optimum. Yeah, we were there mid-May to mid-June this last trip, and they were great. Yeah, it's one of the things if you travel in France, you'll notice is that a lot of places which are vacation-oriented communities, like a lot of these coastal towns are, are completely deserted in the non-vacation season. And whole sections of these towns, the houses are all closed up. Mm. And the first trip we took... It was almost surprising. It was like in some of these towns, it felt like there'd been a neutron bomb that had gone off. You'd be in this completely intact town and there'd be no one on the streets. It was very odd. Um, It also means that in some areas, some of the services are not available. Some of the shops are closed. But in the summer, if you look at the boat harbors in the spring, when you walk by and you see these thousands of boats there and they're all tied up and there's almost no boats out on the water. And you think somebody owns all those boats and is using them. And that's probably in July and August. You can just imagine the difference in commotion that occurs along the coast. So um, some people like that milieu. We don't. And I certainly would not try to go there uh, in July and August. I think it would just be too chaotic for my taste. August is certainly the traditional month in in France, so I think August is probably even worse than July generally. But it's beautiful in the spring. Flowers are blooming. Weather's pleasant. Um, it's warm enough. Mm-hmm. So, which months were you were you there? On our 2019 trip, when we hiked the more southerly half, we were there from mid-May to mid-June, and we had fabulous weather and um, enough people on the beaches to make it fun and interesting being able to watch surfboarders and windsurfers and so on, but not crowded. Right. And what is the best way to get to and from trailheads and and to and from the trail in general? Well, they have an excellent train system in France, and all the significant cities on the coast are served by that system. And so if you fly into any major city in, in France, Paris being the most likely, you can get a TGV over to the coast and then a local train sometimes or a TGV all the way to the coast. Roscoff isn't served directly by the train, but there was a town nearby that was and they had a bus that met the train and the bus took you directly into Roscoff. So I think you can probably, from any town of any size on the coast, you can get into the public transit system without too much trouble. Mm-hmm. And, uh, things run on time, they're comfortable, and uh, it was very, very easy to arrange transit to wherever we were going. Uh, when we finished our first trip, we just picked Cherbourg as an end point because it was a seemed like a, we were running, that was about the right distance uh, for us to town. And we were able to get a train back to Paris without any trouble at all. They were running in one train an hour, one train every two hours. And Paris, I mean, in France, Paris is the center of the country and everything goes to Paris. So there's this spider network that comes out of Paris and it goes to everywhere you want to possibly want to go. Yeah. 
even that GR network, when you look on that big map we have, it's, yeah. there are GRs that go right through the center of Paris. It's it's quite amazing. Yeah. No, transit's, transit's not a problem. There's lots and lots of apps that you can get that allow you to access the transit network and figure out timetables and make reservations and so forth. It's, it's really not very difficult at all. Yeah. They're all, most of, we found plenty of them that are in English that access the European rail networks and uh, and they take credit cards and you can buy your tickets in advance and you know exactly what seat you're on and it's it's simple. Mm-hmm. So going through the photos on your website, I see uh, military bunkers and fortifications along the coast. Oh, yes. I see ancient cathedrals or churches uh, with stained glass windows. I see towns with these beautiful stone houses that are often hundreds of years old. And uh, sometimes the same family has been there for hundreds of years. So this is very different. As you were saying earlier, when you were talking about coastal paths, very different from the typical trip through the mountains, especially the way many Americans might do it with where you're backpacking and you don't see human habitation for a number of days. One thing I'd like to um, point out is that the Northern France and England are cold water coastlines. And as such, they don't, you don't see the sort of enormous amounts of development that you see on the Mediterranean coast of France, which is a warm water coast, uh-huh. or the Mediterranean coast of Spain, which is a warm water coast, where it's just one high rise tourist town after another. The coasts on the Atlantic are pretty much, these towns have not been overrun by claptrack and tiki tacky and so forth. They feel just like regular towns. And that's one of the things that makes those places a charming place to go. Um, the original, the northern section of the GR 34 was, parts of it were a pilgrimage route from the Middle Ages. And it mm. actually went to a number of cathedral towns along the coast. And the route still goes through, I think, four of the towns that were part of it, that pilgrimage route. Um, other portions of it were, created by locals as smugglers' trails huh. and by the local constabulary as anti-smuggler trails. <laughs> <laughs> so there's this whole network of stuff that's been there for a long time that's been linked up to create these long routes. But these most of these trails weren't purpose-built in the last 20 years by the French government. They were just pieced together from existing stuff. So it really feels integrated into the landscape. Right. And these little villages, most of them um, are built out of local materials. So there's a certain continuity between the towns that it doesn't look like they've just been overrun by the latest building style. They look like they've been there for a while and they look like they fit comfortably into the landscape. And we find that's one of the things that makes walking, long distance walking in settled places as interesting as long distance walking in wilderness areas. They're very different, but they also have a lot to offer that a wilderness area doesn't. I'm really happy to go to the Sierras and see big mountains and not run into anybody for for days and days and days and 
just be out there. But there's something really fun about being able to walk through a village every four or five hours and go into a patisserie and get, you know, some taste treat. Yep. Before we talk about pastries, which we which we must do, I want to really reiterate what Jim said about cold water coasts versus warm water coasts. Uh-huh. For anybody who has been on the Mediterranean coast of France or Spain, where there are hotels and the experience of walking in those places when we have been there has been, we need to stay at least two miles from the coast because the immediate strip along the coast is quite unpleasant. We, we talked about lots of holiday merrymakers in the coast of Brittany or the coast of Finisterre in France. Those are families, low-key families who are often camping or renting, you know, small um, apartments or houses. And for me, it's a joyful atmosphere. It's not, it's not that sort of yuck. I don't really want to be around all these hotels um, atmosphere. There's really, I don't remember much by way of hotels at all. There was no claptrap anywhere on that route that I can remember. And we have found that true pretty much worldwide, that if, if the water is cold enough that you want to wear a wetsuit to go swimming, it just doesn't attract the same crowd. It doesn't attract the same crowd and it doesn't attract the same kinds of buildings and activity. A good example of that is uh, we walked um, a big alpine route in Italy, the uh, Gran Turismo de Alpi, which was, I don't know, a six-week walk along the French-Italian border. And it was through all these beautiful ancient hill towns and just gorgeous landscape. And we hit the coast in an Italian beach town, and it was like terrible. We we just we couldn't stay there. We, we just had to get out of town. It was full of hundreds and hundreds, thousands of people walking around trying to be cool. It was full of people driving around loud motorcycles and cars, and there were junk shops and cheap food shops, and it was just like. <laughs> We were so excited. We were going to get to the Mediterranean tomorrow. We're we're going to get to the sea. We're going to finish this walk, and it's going to be wonderful. And it was like 20 minutes there, and we just had to leave. We couldn't take it. The the GR5, which we have discussed offline, and which I did years ago, ends in Nice on the beach. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And the last maybe four hours, you come down off of the, the last hill, which extends way down into nice there's just the there's this this chain of mountains that that extends down through the city and and you walk along the ridge and there are not that many people up there and then it just drops you right into a back street and and then dumps you onto a main avenue and you're walking through the center of nice with your backpack and <laughs> You know, yeah. Whatever. Like landing on Mars. Yeah, and and then you just walk onto the beach, you know, and it's a French beach, and and there are people, you know, you're you're trying to pick your way in between the beach blankets to get to the water to finish your your hike, your through hike. So yeah, it, it's it's a little otherworldly. I, I I knew what to expect. I mean, we had a uh, we had a hotel reserved, and and um, you know took shelter in the hotel but uh 
it it was quite a transition and the, and the the last day I, I woke up in a monastery way up in a on, on one of the last hills and and uh, walked about I think 30 miles that day I, I I knocked out a whole lot of mileage which was downhill in the last day but it's as you're saying you're you're ending up on the on a Mediterranean beach on choosing trails Christine's very fine interview that you did with Christine. She talked about the website Waymark Trails. Mm, yeah, and we were, which is a which is a rendering of OpenStreetMap that highlights the the Waymarked trails and lets you download the GPX files for them. So we were poking around Waymark Trails, and we noticed a coastal walk on an island, I think, in South Korea. Huh. Off, this, off the peninsula, there was an island with a with a coastal path, and we got oh. very, very, very excited. It's now very easy to use CalTopo or or Google Maps or what you know your tool of choice to drop into Google Street View and see. You know, you drop in thirty or forty different places along the trail and see what what kind of place is this, and would we like to go hiking there? Yeah. So that's another tool that. Um, we haven't mentioned before, but that helped us decide that we weren't really that interested in that coastal walk on the island in South Korea, um, just because we looked at 40 different places along the trail and none of them looked all that interesting. Right. So the, the second time you did this trail, uh, which was 2019, right? Yes. Um, you came from another hike. And so my my usual question on this is, did you use any equipment that is different from your usual setup? But what would you say to the issue of equipment for this kind of hike? It's it's a different, as we've discussed, it's a different kind of hike. So <clears throat> one, one thing that I've dabbled with myself and, and and seeing others suggest is is if you're hiking in France where you might want to go to a restaurant <laughs> at the end of the day, perhaps you should be carrying a lightweight spare shirt that's presentable in a restaurant or questions like this. I think two, thing, two things that we take on um, long distance hike like this that we don't take on wilderness hikes. One is a dry pair of shoes, a second pair of shoes. Uh-huh. Very lightweight slippers to wear in restaurants. Yeah. Um, and two is an umbrella because it's just very handy when it's raining to use an umbrella. And on wilderness trips where you're also taking six or eight or ten days worth of food, the weight of the umbrella becomes problematic. Right. But for a trip where you're buying food every day, the luxury of an umbrella is worthwhile. Right. Um, other than that, I guess sometimes we do take a a clean shirt and lightweight pants. We haven't we've we're cutting that out pretty much. Um we go our style is pretty basic. And for so we have a sort of basic kit that we take on a wilderness trip wherever it is and a basic kit we take on a non-wilderness trip wherever it is. And the big difference is just what are the minimum temperatures we're likely to experience? And so do you take a little bit more warmth or a little bit less warmth? But the rest of it is pretty standard. And there's an, a large overlap between the kits for those two types of trips. We take the same tent. We take the same pads. We take the same sleeping quilt. 
uh, same first aid kit, and so forth. And so even though we were going to be in the mountains in Slovenia, Slovakia, uh, Slovakia, excuse me, um, and we ended up on the coast of France, it, there wasn't anything we needed that we didn't have with us. Yeah. And this is our kits have just been refined over a lot of, lot of travel and it works for us in our style. Now our style is primarily camping and primarily camping wherever we happen to end up and not staying in official campsites. And so we have a small tent and we have a, we don't cook and we know how to be a little obscure and that works fine everywhere we've been. Um, and it worked fine in the, in France as well. Nobody, we never had any issues with anybody saying, Hey, you shouldn't be there. Or you should move on or anything like that. And huh. there's never any feeling like, boy, you know, we're, you know, pushing the edge here. Yeah. And, um, a lot of folks um, in camper vans who are just pulling off the side of the road in parking areas, spending the night. And they seem all along the coast there, it seemed to be common. So we felt like, you know, if we're in a tent instead of a camper van, I don't think anybody's going to care. And right? on the other hand, I mean, hiking a coastal route like this does mean that one could stay in lodging a good deal of the time if one chose to. Yes, absolutely. Yes. The issue with the lodging along the coast would be if you're there in the off season, um, a lot of it may not be open. Yep. And if you're there during the on season, you probably need reservations to get anything to stay at. We don't know how extensively Airbnb and its uh, similar uh, applications have penetrated, but we did use it successfully on a few occasions on this walk in France to get lodging. But we stayed, we stayed four nights out of 30 on the French coast indoors right. for the second trip. And on the, on the first trip, we stayed five nights out of 26 indoors. The okay. rest of the time was in our tent. So we've mentioned that you did this the second time with electronic maps only. Yes. Now, if someone were doing more preparation ahead. Uh, the first time you used a Cicerone book, I haven't looked to see whether that's still available from Cicerone. Actually, we did not use the book. We looked at it at home and decided it wasn't particularly useful. Huh. It's okay. Huge amounts of extraneous text. And right. very, very difficult to actually extract the information you need. So we didn't find it. We didn't take a guidebook when we did the first time or the second time. Yeah. We had the, the first time we had the IGN maps and between those maps and the uh, waymarks, it was not a problem to stay on track. Cicerone is an excellent publisher and it's in the United Kingdom. So if someone is looking from other countries, then uh, it might require a little bit of hunting and, and one should realize that they are a, a .co.uk place and, and you can order one can order stuff directly from Cicerone if, if you can't find it on your local Amazon or whatever else. Some of their I, guidebooks are excellent. They vary enormously in quality in terms of the writing. Um, yep. they, they don't really, many of these guidebooks are written just by someone who's familiar with the area. and yep. um, They aren't written by professional authors. Part of the problem for a, a long distance walker is 
if if you like it, there's a huge amount of extraneous information that has nothing to do with staying on the walk, right. but it's carrying a much heavier book and wading through all that text to find out, oh, there's the corner where we have to turn. And so we have found a few guidebooks that have been pared down and are basically how to stay en route. And those are, we like those. And the extraneous information now you can care you can download a wikipedia and put it on your phone and so if you want to know what that building is or what the history of this town is you can just look it up you don't have to carry the text around with you in a piece of paper yeah um all cicerone books are now available in electronic format although i think that there are limitations to the usefulness of that but when i did the gr5 I did it alternating between two different friends, but one friend carried a copy of the Cicerone book and tore out the pages as we went and <laughs> reduced the weight. And so he ended up with just the cover. <laughs> yeah, we've done that too. <laughs> uh, a little trail behind you of breadcrumbs in the form of torn out pages of guidebooks. And if he listens to this interview, he he's going to know exactly who I'm talking about. So. He can laugh. Shout out to Chris there. So what sort of costs, what are the variables in cost that one can look at if one is looking at doing this trip? And, and, and what are the costs like? The, the variable costs are food and lodging. We prefer to camp in our tent generally than to stay indoors. So for us, we don't do that to save money, but it a side effect is it saves a lot of money. The second variable is food. And for us, we we like to eat and we tend to eat in restaurants as often as we can. So I don't know on this trip, we probably ate a sit-down meal at least once every other day. It would be very easy to just do it from grocery stores, eat bread and cheese and sausage and pastries. Yep. The, the issue with restaurants in France is timing. Right. And when you're on a walk like this, restaurants in France basically serve lunch between 12 and 1.30. And if you're not there between 12 and 1.30, you cannot get a meal. Restaurants in France generally don't open in the evening till 7 or 7.30. And if you're there before then, you cannot get a meal. So... If you're on a walk and you are just walking from wherever you want to be to wherever you end up, when you walk through a town and it's not meal serving time, you're kind of out of luck to be able to buy a meal. You can buy coffee or a beer in a cafe, and maybe if you're lucky, they might make you uh, a quiche or something, maybe. But most of the time, you really can't buy prepared food. There are very, very few fast food places. There are, I don't think we saw a single McDonald's or Burger King or anything like that on this walk. They're still small. They tend to be small restaurants, family-owned restaurants, family-owned cafes. And they're open when they're open. And that's it. And everybody who lives there knows that. And that's how they set their lives. But for us... I mean, there are many times we'd walk into town and it's going to be the only town for the rest of the day, but it's 11 o'clock in the morning and do we want to wait till noon to get a meal or not? And grocery stores, you also have to be careful because they often have very odd hours depending on the owner of the store. 
Some of them will take siestas that start at two, and some will take siestas that start at three, and some will finish open again at four or five. And it's not always easy to get that information ahead of time. So being flexible helps. And the way that we basically made that work is we always had a couple of meals in our pack just in case. Yeah. So if we didn't find a place, we weren't going to go hungry. But the patisseries, though, are, are open all day. And the only problem with the patisseries is toward the afternoon, they've sold everything. <laughs> so what's the best time of day to hit the patisseries? Well, they, many of them open at 6. In the morning. Yeah, and everything is fresh and, oh, God, it's glorious. Yeah. Glorious. <laughs> and you can find it by the smell. <laughs> yes. You can, you can find them by the stream of people coming yeah. toward you. <laughs> yeah. We'd often, literally, we'd figure out where it was because you'd see people walking down the street carrying a fresh loaf of bread underneath their arm, and you'd say, okay, we're heading upstream. <laughs> we're heading towards <laughs> And uh, because people people shop on them on a regular basis, they go and they get their their baguette every morning for yep. their breakfast or for their lunch. And you walk in there, and the woman who's behind the counter, she knows ninety percent of the customers. She knows exactly what they want, and she puts it there. And it's just this really really fast transition. And yep. we walk in, and they're very friendly extraordinarily friendly and nice and we walk in and bonjour bonjour and and we just start you know noses against the case looking at all things trying to figure out which one or two or three or four we're going to buy today and the other patrons are out there waiting in line we keep you know say you know go ahead go ahead go ahead go ahead you know and the ladies are uh, who run these places uh, i guess are used to people like us and they're very very patient and very kind so. And it's worth the price of admission just for those things. You asked about costs per se. I, I would say that grocery store costs were re Same. reasonably Same. comparable to grocery store costs in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, the small cafes are probably a, a little bit more expensive than small cafes in the U.S. No. Do you think so? No, I think it's comparable to the U.S. And, of course, you can spend a small fortune on fabulous meals in France. If you yeah. choose but, to. But, but regular restaurants are no more expensive than we're used to. Yeah, and, and in France, one just sort of rounds up the bill rather than tipping 20% or something like one does in the U.S. Well, they have, most of them have service charge built in. Ah, right, right. The, uh, yeah, I, I find that that tipping issue often makes costs of restaurants in other countries a lot closer than one might think yeah i don't i didn't it, the price of food either in grocery stores or restaurants or patisseries all felt very familiar didn't feel any different from home yeah so i often ask guests about how they fit the hiking adventuring into their lives how they make it work financially and that sort of thing and of course you're retired as we mentioned at the beginning of the of this interview. And we've also been over that sort of question, I think, in our previous interview. But you had an interview shortly after our last interview uh, on another podcast 
um, which is the Driven By podcast uh, with Sam Coates. And it's episode 34 of, of his Driven By podcast. And, and you spent over an hour discussing that question of how you made this work through your lives. And I think that that is a very valuable interview for m- many people to listen to. And I'm I'm glad that he did it, that you did that interview with him. So uh, I I do refer people to that episode of that podcast if, for people who are interested in in learning more about how the two of you have have fit all of this into your lives. Um, and anyone listening to this can tell how extensively you have uh, pursued these adventures over the past thirty years or or more. Do you have anything to to add or anything to sum up, um, you know, for people who are uh, who want to get more adventure in their lives and who are trying to fit it into the normal lives that almost all of us lead with a real job and the not being able to take infinite leave and kids to take care of and spouses who might not have the same enthusiasms and that sort of thing? Well, I think one thing I would like to say is I like the way you say adventure for the kinds of things that we, many of the things that we do. Some of the things that we do might be considered on the edge adventures, some of the trips we take, but you can have a great experience doing something like a coastal walk in France, which doesn't require significant backpacking or outdoor skills. And you could you could even do it as a series of day hikes between lodges and have the vast majority of the same experience that we did and have a wonderful time. So you don't have to be, you know, you don't have to be Everest ready to be able to take these kinds of trips. No. And I think a lot of people think, oh, you know, I'd like to do something like that, but I, I just don't think I could do it. There's lots of ways that you can do these things on your own or even with is supported. Uh, one of the things that we might mention is that in many countries in Europe, they have things that are called pack horse services in which you sign up with a group and they will transport your luggage from lodging to lodging. They will actually reserve all the lodgings that you need ahead of time based on an itinerary that you work out with them. How far do you want to walk each day and so forth? And so you can just do the walking part. It adds some cost to the trip, but it makes it quite possible to try one of these things with very, very low risk. And if you find you enjoy it, well, you can learn how to carry a backpack and you can learn how to camp and you can reduce the cost if that's important to you. But Try it for a week or try it for two weeks and pick a piece of coast in Britain or Spain or France and just do it. Um, and you may or may not like it, but you won't know until you try it. And you might find that it's surprisingly easy to do. Yeah. Let, let me let me come back and try to address how to fit this into a life in addition to what Jim just talked about. Because... Both of us got started with a passion for outdoor activities when we were very young. By the time we left home, each independently, we didn't know each other then. We knew that it, you know, I knew 
that being outdoors was a very important part of my life. And I ended up doing a career at a desk indoors, which I very much enjoyed the work, but it was not anything that I was particularly passionate about in the sense of, you know, speaking to my heart. But I knew that being that having time to go hiking and being outdoors was important. And so when I looked for jobs, I looked for companies that would let me take time without pay in addition to the standard vacation time, that that was a requirement of accepting a job someplace. So that instead of being limited to three or four weeks of vacation, I could take even when I was working full time, I could take six or eight weeks of vacation. And then we squeezed a lot into those time into that time. Likewise for Jim, he was at a company that um, had the flexibility to take more time off than was standard. And those were deliberate decisions um, that each of us made in order to spend more time outdoors. Thank you. We're all working our way through this <laughs> pandemic. <laughs> And, um, and Amy, you recently had an injury that you've been recovering from. Um, I hope you're all better now. Yeah, the pat in just in the last week, I'm at five and a half months from injury. And just in the last week, I feel like I've turned a corner. Great. Yeah. Very encouraging. Yeah. And injuries are frightening in themselves, but, um, frightening because they can change our lives too. So what are the trails that you're dreaming of doing right now? Well, our list of potential paths is extremely long. <laughs> I have mapped in enough detail that we could do a long distance loop walk in Britain that, um, goes from the Irish Sea to the North Sea and back um, up along the, the British-Scottish border uh, and includes uh, the Pennine Way, which is the classic English long-distance hill walk, which we've never done. The GR5, which you have done from Geneva to the coast, um, looks was the one we were hoping that France would open this year. And if it had, that was what we were going to do. Mm. Um, but France doesn't look like they're going to open. And mm -hmm. if the refuges aren't open, it's not worth doing because having the refuges is part of the joy of that kind of walk. We're taking off uh, for Utah in a, in a couple of weeks. And I have a couple of trips in the Sierras mapped. If I could do, to tell you the truth, I'm not sure I'm, I'm in my seventies now and exactly how robust I still am, but uh, if we could deal with the rain, we'd like to do the Tayaroa in, in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think we're probably both too chicken for the rain to actually do that. Yeah. There are there's some other walks in Spain, particularly one that I've been looking at along the north coast of Spain. That's partly 
some of the pilgrim paths, partly just a long coastal walk. It would start at the French-Spanish border and um, curl around to the um, Atlantic side of Spain. And that looks like a possibility. Um, and we have a whole bunch of places we want to go birding that um, that kind of intermingle with all the all the walking we're doing. Yeah. We haven't walked in Germany. We haven't walked in um, Scandinavia. We haven't walked very, very much at all in Eastern Europe. There's supposed to be an excellent uh, walk in Slovakia. Uh, I mean, uh, no, in Slovenia, mm-hmm. that, uh, in the mountains there, that's kind of on the list. And there are other walks in the Alps. There's the that we that on the eastern side of the Alps and the, into the Dolomites that we haven't explored that would be worth looking at as well. And there's um, a couple of walks in South America that um, we, that have sort of been sitting on the list for a long time. The the Huaywash walk, um, which goes up pretty high in Peru. So certainly won't get them all done, but, and Amy? Oh, it's, you know, having been grounded now for 14 months, anything out of the county is sounding really appealing. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I know you had mentioned uh, doing canoe trips out of the county. Yes. Did you get to do those? Well, we actually had planned and organized a trip to paddle the Sacramento River from below the Oroville Dam down to Sacramento last summer. And then California went up in flames and the smoke was made it That's right. completely impossible to do for yeah. the entire paddling season. So, uh, no, we have not planned anything else on that front. Uh, There's a couple we've looked at um, in the east. uh, um, It is a trip that runs across New York on what remains of the old Erie Canal. That looks like it might be an interesting Mm -hmm. trip. Yep. I was kind of in the throes of exploring some of those things when this whole COVID thing hit and they got pushed to the back burner because the... A trip like that really isn't practical until people feel comfortable being out because you're in all these little little small towns. Yeah. You're interacting with all sorts of folks. Yeah. And both for our welfare and their welfare, it's it's not really fair for outsiders to be coming into these small mm-hmm. towns. Yeah. So concretely right now, we've been vaccinated. And we're looking at either trips in the U.S. or if we go overseas, going to a country that um, is in reasonably good shape in terms of vaccination rates. Right. Um, so it's limited. Yeah. It's like, right, I mean, we're not, we're not complaining in the sense that everybody is in the same boat. We're not unique here. And um, for us, the the whole COVID issue has been relatively easy to deal with. We don't have kids at home. We don't have to 
work from home on Zoom every day. And um, we live in a, an area where people generally take it seriously. Mm-hmm. And so the behavior of almost everybody outdoors is, is appropriate. Uh, we understand that a large number of people around the world have it much, much harder than we do. So we don't want to sound like we're complaining. Understood. Um, so, and we went over this in the last interview, but what is the best way for listeners to find out more about your adventures? Uh, we have a website, doingmiles.com. Doing miles is one word. And in there we have trip reports for a reasonable percentage of um, our trips. And the reports are organized to provide you with enough information to be able to do it on your own, either through data that we give you directly or for references for other sources of data that uh, if we put it up, there would just be duplicating a, a good source. Right. And we're continuing slowly to add trips there that are in our backlog. Mm-hmm. We enjoy if people uh, find something or if they have questions, they can always contact us through the, through the website. Well, thank you very much. Once again, really appreciate having had you on and, and uh, you're sharing your knowledge and experience with us. It's very enjoyable to chat with you. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Trails Around the World podcast. Please visit us online at trailsaroundtheworld.com and please join our Facebook group under the same name. If you liked this podcast, please help us out by leaving a review on your favorite podcast source, such as Apple Podcasts. This is Sky King, and I look forward to you joining us next time. In the meantime, happy trails to you, and please remember to leave no trace as you enjoy the outdoors.